0: This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello, welcome and thank you for listening to a new episode of this podcast. It's called When the Clocks Stop. So here we are in April 2021 and in the spirit of Easter, after what seemed like the longest winter since the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, we appear finally to be at the dawn of a new beginning. And new beginnings will be somewhat of a theme of today's episode. Will Greenwood left Durham in 1994, breaking into top flight rugby just before the sport in this country went from amateur to professional. In a following career, Will became a victorious and three time British and Irish lion, first touring South Africa in 1997 before his first England cap. For England, Will would prove an exceptionally prolific try scorer and key component of a side under Sir Clive Woodward that dominated and transformed the international game. Will now coaches at Maidenhead Rugby Club, is a renowned television pundit and newspaper columnist, and is a passionate and powerful endorser of all sport at all ages and levels. Will Greenwood, Lions England, Durham legend. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing?
1: Uh, Absolute pleasure. Um, Crikey, 1994 seems a long time ago now. (laughs) Um, And yet, just this morning, uh, the WhatsApp was buzzing with three lads who left in 93, who are still my closest, nearest
0: and dearest. So um, once Durham has you, it has you for good. I just want to ask you a first question. As a lifelong Man City fan, uh, we're talking about new beginnings. Sergio Aguero really led the line, literally, um, for Man City's uh, new era into excellence. Um, I know you were there at that game in 2012. Um, just, Just quickly, as a City fan, a word on Sergio Aguero and the new era after Sergio?
1: Yeah, look, so what a poacher. It was Swansea at home. Um, I was in front of Swansea fans and I think about a couple of bevvies and I was asked what I thought the score might be. I think I went with 7-1 and was instantly booed by all the Swansea fans and then sort of called them the Dirty Welch. Uh, it goes back a long way. Yeah,
0: of course, of family. course. It
1: goes back a long way with the Greenwood family. Uh, spectacular player that came through, you sort of think of Yaya Silver, De Bruyne, just world 11 players across it. Uh, the joy is when you've discovered oil and you're owned by Abu Dhabi, um, that the chance is you can sort of replace him with Haaland and well, what's 300 million between friends, eh? So uh, my son, my youngest, um, walked out onto the pitch as a mascot with Aguero for the Watford game a couple of years ago. So we've got a signed Aguero shirt um, to Rocco, dream big, con Aguero. So that's up uh, in my lads. And, you know, we're, we're just, we're mad City fans. So it's it's, it's a great club to support and uh, clearly it's the
0: Champions League that, that's all that matters this year. Absolutely. That's the next level, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Durham. What are your fondest memories um, as a student rugby player and um, just as a student in general?
1: Probably the eight-hour bus trip back from Cardiff, having beaten them in a final. Yeah, it's those sort of um trips and memories. We're winning the semi-final, we got bamming, I mean, we got battered in the final. We don't really talk about the final. Loughborough absolutely cleaned us up in 92. But the journey to the final was great. We were a pub team, really. We had a couple of half-decent players. I was a thick, thin fly-half who weighed about 11 kilos. Uh, we had no right to make the final, but we had such a good time uh, yeah. getting there. Uh, the people I met were extraordinary. The I can forty-four Hawthorne Terrace, thirty-one Sutton Street. I remember the characters, the men, the women, the friendships. Uh, and then afterwards, it, it you know, it gave a lot to me. One of my proudest days was getting a doctorate uh, from Bill Bryson in the cathedral uh, with my mum and dad there. And look, I know. That had nothing to do with my <laughs> intelligence. I'm a Doctor of Civil Law. I mean, I did okay. I got a two-one in economics back in the day, um, but to get a doctorate and to be recognised was 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 lovely and humbling. Yeah, it was just. It, it literally is. A, you know, you sometimes can go over the top about these things. If you were to say the greatest years of your life, you'd, I'd probably say Durham were were those with just naivety innocence I'd been to an all boys boarding school teachers as parents, very victorian Lancastrian northern upbringing do as I say uh, listen, do follow copy, and then suddenly it's like wow kind you know what's what's all what's, what's all this about so uh, really, really, really special. I mean, I, Actually, when I went to Durham, for the, to understand that relationship, I failed to get into Cambridge, uh, maudlin. And uh, then my dad just said, "Were well, you're going to Durham. i would never been to Durham in my life. So when I turned up late September 1991 in my little mini metro, I'd never been to Durham in my entire life. Now, the thought in this... In the 21st century of a boy or a girl going to university that they hadn't visited or they didn't, didn't know anything about. is just alien, I would imagine. So uh, it was all a leap into the unknown. And the first person I met, met was a, a chap actually from Grey called Ben Richardson. And he's still my greatest pal. And then the first girl I bumped into in the dinner queue um, I ended up dating her for three months. It just everything was just like it was an insane world, noise, color, alcohol, education, freedom, uh, great times. I mean, absolutely great
0: times. Yeah, phenomenal. Do you think players, professional players nowadays, young players are missing out on kind of that that richer pathway through life oh, through education? Yeah, totally.
1: Look, I, I understand that as rugby gets increasingly professional i know they've all taken during the pandemic 25 percent pay cuts and i know there's that's happened but the reality is behind the scenes private equity firms are coming in to buy the six nations private equity firms are looking to buy half the all blacks media organizations understand the tribal nature of rugby the potential rugby world cup is the third biggest sporting event on the planet the japanese market the american market um, there is now a, a living to be made out of out of playing rugby. But that living is, I mean, a wealthy living is for the very, very, very few who make a, a life-changing sum of money from rugby. Um, and at the same time, even if you make a life-changing sum of rugby, you finish at thirty five and there's a long there's a lot of your life still to live. So uh, you can have all the money you want in the world, but if you've got nothing to do, life's pretty dull. So uh, I, I think a whole generation of players were perhaps probably let down in the race for professionalism, pick them up into academies, uh, let's get going, come and play, and then jettisoned, injury, gone. Um, I do believe clubs now offer uh, a sort of dual pathway of education and rumpy. And, and if a club didn't offer me that or didn't offer, me, didn't offer a player that I knew that I would tell him to choose a different route immediately. Yeah. And I think it goes, it goes, uh, you know, in, in men's and women's sport, I think alongside your race for professionalism to try and be the very best in the world, I do believe you can do both when you're young and you should be encouraged to do both. And it's tough, but uh, if you do both and you come out and you have a modicum of success of international sport and you have... Uh, the, the graft and the application to have worked and studied hard alongside it, I genuinely believe you can do anything.
0: I mean, we've just had Fitz Harding from Durham who's just signed a deal with Bristol Bears. He scored his last try. Uh, and I know last know because I coach Fitz at Wellington. Yeah. So, um, so and I, think- I
1: know his mum really well and what the amazing thing about Fitz is, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, he was sort of second team at school. He was fringes and he's... What I love about that sort of player, a bit like a Nick Easter, if you go back a little bit, you've got to graft, you've got to go, you're not picked up in academies, you're not first pick in the, you know, in the, in the playground, you're not first pick all the time. No, You're playing five-a-side footy, there's always the same player pick first and there's always the poor lad pick last. Uh, Fitz was picked in the middle uh, and very, I was a B team player at school when I first got to Durham I was in the thirds. I was in the fourth I think for a game a or Fitz out. was in
0: the fourth as well yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, so you got to do and you've got to graft and apply yourself uh, for that and I think, I think that's great and there's obviously Josh Basham who decided to do uh, a year his year off with London Irish Academy and then went right now I'm going to Durham uh, I'm going to do it like that so there is no perfect route you have to find your who's who am i to say this is what you must do but i think you should explore these these avenues to the top because there is more than one path to get there and it would be a shame to get to 30 and go i wish i had so when I i was a foreign exchange trader and i was going to give up rugby yeah and stay in the city and just play at Ros- I say give up rugby. I'd have played at Roslyn Park with a load of Durham lads, but I would I would I would not have turned professional in ninety six, but it was actually my dad who said, don't be the bloke at the end of the bar in 30 years' time who said you could have done you, sh- you could have should have buts is. you've got to try and remove those words in life. So I took a two-year uh, sabbatical from Durham uh, from HSBC to try and play international rugby and did and sort of never looked back but uh, that was thanks to, to my dad so keep lifting up stones keep looking under stones like Baloo the bear the rocks and plants and take a look at the fancy ants or whatever it is he sings in maybe try
0: book. a few yeah yeah exactly,
1: exactly. It's the, it, it, well, um, I'm the king of the swingers was actually my uh, first cap song on the bus nice so the jungle book is um as a soft spot for me yeah
0: So you had no sort of ambition. I mean, when you were coming through sort of university, professional rugby wasn't a thing. Um, But then when when your dad sort of said, you know, give it a try, look under the rocks and plants, um, what was kind of the the lifestyle change for you at that point when you're you're giving this a go in, in a new professional game?
1: So I suspect your listeners and perhaps even the parents who might be listening would think, well, we're professional. And obviously... He Dedicated himself to his sport and became like a Tibetan monk. Um, he fasted, he abstained, um, he, he, he did not speak to women, uh, and he chained himself to a running machine until he achieved greatness. The reality is, uh, I signed for Leicester. I ran Austin Healy. We played together at Waterloo. Yeah. Part of the bet was he, was he was still, he'd moved to Oral, which now doesn't exist, but great club, great club, just off Junction 26 of the M6. Uh, great club, some proper players came through there, Dowie Morris, Nigel Heslop, um, somehow St- Sammy Southern, and we said, where should we go? So we said, well, let's meet in the middle, because I was well, let's go to Leicester, let's, he'll, he'll drive down, and I'll drive up, we'll pull off at the M69, and, and we'll go and join Leicester, and, and we did. So Leicester put us in the Holiday Inn. So for the first three months, I lived in a twin room in the Holiday Inn, with Austin, getting paid to sort of train. Um, So it was absolute carnage. I mean, absolute carnage. Uh, And then we eventually got thrown out of the holiday inn, not for any damage or any super form, because we were inviting the whole of the Leicester first team after training back to the holiday inn for full Sunday roast every day. And Peter Wheeler, who was uh, the ex-captain and the lion and and the CEO, couldn't work out why our food bill was about seven grand a week. We were basically feeding the team. In it. So uh, yeah, in those first early years, it really was the Wild West. Uh, no one really knew about or had anything a knowledge of sports science, certainly no knowledge uh of of the body's capacity. So we overtrained, uh, we really did. We, we were full contact training virtually every day. Uh and it took
0: its toll eventually on a lot of people. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean and at that stage when you're playing for Leicester, I think you you're with Austin Healy. You got a letter through to invite to a, to a Lions tour um, before any sort of England stuff. Did you sort of ha- have any sort of inkling that that was a possibility? Were you completely surprised? What kind of contact did you have leading up to that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in the first year at Leicester, so we joined in 96 and the Lions tour would obviously be 97. But if you look at the 96 season for Leicester, I think we played 49 games. And when we didn't end up winning the league, we we literally ran out of juice because we played. We were in every cup competition. In fact, we ended up only winning one. We should have won the treble. Mm. Uh, we lost the European Cup final to Brev, but we put fifty on to lose. I mean, you think about that fifty. We put fifty on to lose. We won the Billington Cup, the Tetley Bitter Cup. There's no cup trophy anymore, but there used to be a cup. that all clubs, but like the FA Cup, all clubs could enter, and then the senior teams come in a little bit later. Uh, and we won that. And we were top of the league until about three weeks to go. And then because we played so many competitions, we had to play eight games in about 14 days. And it was literally like the song. It was like MASH, that programme. Uh, from the 70s, just bodies strewn everywhere. Uh, and we, we fell at the final hurdle. But by that stage, the Lions draw had been picked on the back of the form Leicester had shown. And because, literally, I think because of the European knockout stages in the quarters and semi-finals, McGeekin had sort of seen something in a skinny kid that thought... If we're gonna try and go around the South Africans rather than through them, this this lad should be involved. And I was I was involved in the wider squad. So they first of all send out a letter to let you know that you're part of the consideration, you're in the top 60. Top 60. But, so that was sort of a month before selection. So that would have probably been March. So I sort of knew I had a chance. And the other thing in life, which is always helpful, is uh, Frank Cotton was manager, Stan Bagshaw was kit man, good northern men. And Stan Bagshaw was an amazing. He, he was the kit guy. And he's got loose lips, and he sort of said to my old man, "I think, I think Will's close, you know." So I sort of had an idea that I was close. I never knew, um, so it wasn't a complete shock, but it was still an unbelievable honour. And it's probably—I know statistics don't mean much really in the grand scheme of things, but probably the thing I'm most proud of. And who knows, maybe. I think Simmons has had a cap, so he wouldn't be an uncapped player. Don Brown would be an uncapped player. I think, you know, I'm the last uncapped player to go on a Lions tour. It'd be like them picking Fitz Harding now from a good couple of premiership games to go on the tour. It's that sort of uh, rarity of occurrence. So, uh, yeah, amazing times.
0: What's the best thing about the Lions? I mean, obviously for fans, for players, for for opponents, it is ultimate rugby, but... But from your experience, what makes the line so special? It's almost—it's almost the first meeting when you
1: first meet up. Yeah. You walk into the room. You go to your, you go to your room first at the hotel, and there'll be a bag of kit, and you've got to put the kit on for the first meeting. So first of all, you're putting the new threads on, and it don't matter how old you get, a bit of lion's kit that's actually that's. Your Lions kit with your initials on. That's proper tasty, that is. And then you've got the kit on and you walk into the first meeting room and there are the best of the best. There's Keith Wood, there's Scott Gibbs, there's Gregor Townsend in 97. You know, you go to 01 and you're looking around and there's O'Driscoll, uh, Jason Robinson, Rob Alley, 05 again, O'Connell... You just looking going, wow, like I'm like a like a, I'm the enthusiastic kid from Blackburn. What am I doing here? Literally, you're, you're, you have the imposter syndrome all your life. And I, I did. It's like, what am I doing here? Um, so it's it's actually the the realization that you are surrounded by the very, very best, and you've been you've been you've been picked for it. And of course, winning Alliance tour is unbelievably special. In ninety seven, insane. But you can't tell me, well, someone would be forcing words into my mouth to say, well, ninety-seven was more fun than 05. Clearly winning uh, adds something to it. But some of the people I met in 01 and 05, you meet some amazing, even on a on a beaten tour, it's impossible
0: not to have the most amazing time. Yeah, that's amazing. Warren Gatlin then is his third lines tour. Um, just with selection, there just seems to be so many kind of factors at play, and, and with the current state of Northern Hemisphere rugby, and particularly England, you'd think a few months ago there'd be sort of 10-15 automatic picks for, for England on that tour, you'd, you'd presume, and now England have absolutely no form, and I just want from your perspective, how much do, does Warren Gatland base his selection on that Six Nations form? Have Surely England players haven't become bad players overnight but you know there's so many players coming through from those other nations in the six nations what do you base selection on because there's so many world-class players proven lions who are not performing
1: so combination is obviously form is the vast percentage of what he'll pick on but then there's muscle memory there's players who've done it for him yeah there's players who he knows from his welsh days can fit his system, can fit his style. There's English players from 17, 2017 that he knows with his coaches, he can make better. What's amazing about coaches, and it's there's, a, there's an arrogance, but a confidence to it, that no, no matter what England may have done this year, Gatlin will see physical attributes in players and go, I can do a better job than Eddie at getting better out of him. And that's what coaches believe. If you ask Eddie, he goes, oh, I could coach that team way better than him. Now they might not say it publicly, but that's what coaches believe. They believe you can give them a certain group of players and they'll make them better than the other coach. They'll believe they're the best coach. And Gatlin has that aura about himself and he uh, and he's ruthless. You know, he dropped O'Driscoll for the third test in 2013. You know, who drops O'Driscoll? And he did. And he was absolutely right. We were talking about it on Sky after the second test. You had to pick Robertson Davies for the third test, uh, but having to and actually doing it are very, very different things, and he showed that on that tour. So, uh, look, the, the obvious ones is uh, Itoshe will go, Sinclair will go, Curry will go, Carroll. You know he's under threat. He's under pressure. Uh, I, I feel he said he's going to take thirty six. He'll take Sexton. The, the argument about Farrell will be is, does Gatland trust Russell? If Sexton got injured in the first minute of the first test, does he trust Russell to play all three test matches and kick goals? Because the reality is, um, if Farrell's not there, then you've probably got Henshaw and Davies and Henshaw and Ringrose, Henshaw and Slade, uh, Henshaw and North in the midfield. You've got a back three of Louis Reed, Samit, Watson, Dwayne van der Merwe, Liam Williams, Johnny May. I'm missing someone out, but Stuart Hogg at the back. Uh, Anthony Elliott, you know, none of them goal kick, right? So we can all play fantasy rugby and fantasy rugby is great, but test matches, by and large, uh, other than the third test in 2013, that but the first test was decided by Kirtley Beale slipping and not kicking a pen. You know, the, the second test in Melbourne needed them to step up and kick him. You go back through all the test matches, the tight test match, while the series is still on the line, by and large, you'd better you better have someone who doesn't miss. Uh, and that's why you sort of feel I mean, the reality is, yeah, I've not even thought bigger's on what bigger is it bigger is in better form than Farrell, and he doesn't miss either. So I think I think Farrell's under a lot of pressure. Just feel that Gatlin will will take him.
0: I mean, the last two tours, he's not taken England captains who people thought would go with with Robshaw and Hartley. So I, I can see him doing it again. Um, just England centres. Um, you're one of the greats. Um, I think I, I've just been I've just been thinking. I think it's the first time, certainly in a long while, it might be the first time in Six Nations history that England have gone a whole tournament and their centres haven't scored a try. Is that right? Um, I, I I don't know that. I've just I've just sort of pontificated on it but um, it's certainly under the first 16, Six Nations
1: ones they can borrow Yeah,
0: <laughs> looking into the Six Nations you know Manny I mean I, th- I think this, this England side sort of under Eddie uh, uh, not reliance but but he is a focal point of, of their game plan and when they're playing at their best a lot comes through what yeah. Tuolangi can do and Farron Slade it, it's, it was never going to be balanced um, what do you think is the future f- for that England centre partnership and do you need Always with an international partnership, a blend, a Tyndall Greenwood kind of contrast?
1: The difference is a key in all sports teams. I don't, you know, whether it's netball or, or hockey, all sports need, teams need to celebrate difference. Uh, all sports teams need to have players that cover each other's blind spots, that yeah. do things that the other one can't do, that allow you, give you brilliant individual perspectives, but don't have the whole picture in focus. So you need, different perspectives to snap the whole picture into focus. The guy on your left or right has to be able to do things that you can't do and vice versa. That then creates the trust. If you pick a whole team of people who do and think exactly the same, then the opposition find a way to stop you and you've got no plan B. There's no alternative route. And when you look to England's back three and midfield for, it just, it was homogenous. It felt like it had assimilated into everyone does exactly the same thing. And uh, I was hugely disappointed by the use of uh, Ollie Lawrence because he went back to his club. And even though they got beat by 50 in his first game back, he was unbelievable. Off the back of a lineup, back peel, bang, hit him on game line, smashed over. And in 34 seconds of, Worc- of his comeback game at Worcester, they did more with him than England did in three games. So, um, the, yeah, the, the, the difference is, to answer your question in a word
0: or a couple, difference in all teams is critical. Difference, fresh perspectives. Do you think there needs to be a, a structural overhaul in, in English leadership? It seems like Ford and Farrell are the captains, the coaches, captain leader legends under Eddie Jones. It seems a very sort of cosy framework there. Does that need... A real challenge.
1: Yeah, so you know, the week after the newspaper come on greens, what 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 they're going to change? And I feel I feel there needs a change in leadership now on the field. One cannot ever question Owens' competitiveness, achievements, trophies, belligerence, toughness, proper kid you want in the trenches next to you. You just feel that the team can't keep making the same errors and hope, and not change. It's the, it's the sort of, it's the quickest route to failure when you're doing things badly to keep doing them and banging your head against the wall. So I, I, I personally would give Tom Curry the nod. I would at seven and just go, right, you're going to be in this team for the next five or six years. You're the best player in the team. You're unbelievable. I mean, I don't, look, Scarlett, Sale. Sale put 50 on Scarlett's. And Tom Curry was just, it was like he was playing against eight-year-olds. Ridiculous. So um, that's
0: that's potentially what I would do. Would you have liked to have seen Cameron Redpath in an England shirt for the next sort of 10, 12 years? I think he's just so well-rounded as a number 12.
1: Yeah, look, so again, it would have been probably September, I get many, many things wrong. I just thought I wrote a piece going, "Wow, Redpath and Lawrence, get them in now, pick them, play them." And for the autumn Nations Cup, didn't. Cameron goes north. He's just got. He's just got time on the ball. He's got balance and he's tough. Uh, I think he's a supremely talented young man. He's clearly. He's got a neck injury. He's got to look after himself.
0: And Lions Bolter Redpath.
1: Uh, it's it's look the inside set, the center slots are hardly nailed down, so he, he has a chance. But I just think if you're he hasn't played, he still isn't playing. Uh, the team, the squad, uh, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. But I'm not sure what games, what caliber of game he can get gives him the platform to say, I'm back, I'm ready, this can happen. Uh, Certainly not inconceivable. And Gatland is someone who only to see a glimpse from someone and he'll take him.
0: Well, very quickly, 9, 10, 12, 13, first test, please.
1: Uh, If you're going on form, I mean, uh, the the, the easiest way to, to, to hide away
0: yeah, well, you'll, well, you are Warren Gatland. We can't go on form. We've got to no, go. On. No, he's no, no.
1: Be... Yeah, you got to have Conor Murray at nine. Yeah. There's no. I mean, uh, I think if Tomas Williams had played the whole Six Nations, because I think he's a proper player. Thomas Williams, proper player. Uh, but I got Conor Murray against England just will have reminded Gatland how good his Test match beast is at nine. You, you have to play Sexton at ten. And I know all my Scottish friends would be like, "What Finn Russell?" At best, Russell's a bet anyway. You're not asking me for my number twenty-two uh, <laughs> Sexton. Your twelve has to be Robbie Henshaw. I mean, it's very Irish. Your twelve has to be Robbie Henshaw. He's the best centre in the tournament by bloody miles. And then if you're on form, you you you're picking George North at thirteen. Um, I think Slade comes into that battle. Uh, what did I say? Murray, Sexton, Henshaw, North.
0: Slade sniffing
1: around. Yeah. Thank you very
0: uh, yeah, much. Thanks, so. I just want to talk to you uh, just briefly about your career and and coming towards the end when you've you've been on all these Lions tours, you, you've you've had a wonderful time. You, you just clearly have had a lot of fun, and you've won a World Cup. What was your mindset sort of approaching retirement? Did did it spook you at all? What was the, the guidance you you were given, especially going into punditry and and Sky Sports? You know, what what was that transition like?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's strange. It's sort uh, July the first, two thousand six. Um, that's it. You sort of walk out. Um, the re- you, know, you get your last payslip, last day of the month on the in June two thousand six, and away you go. The reality is, you, you go on holiday July and August, and it the, the it dawns in you in September. But I'd been very fortunate. I'd started to do some work for Sky uh, as my career was winding down and they came straight in and just said look here's come and work for us for four years and it ended up being 16 um, and that that involved match day stuff but also great programs like School of Hard Knocks working with unemployed lads uh, up and down the country in some pretty rough areas and trying to help them sort themselves out so uh, a real variety to what we did Align that with the, the Telegraph, and I've been writing my own articles there for nearly seventeen years. Uh, so those two gave you a sort of. I can never remember what when you're putting a tent up, there's a certain peg you put in around which the tent goes up, uh, and I have all these Boy Scouts shouting you muppet. It's it's the lead peg or it's the north. Anyway, the point being, uh, I had. Two nice bits of work around which I could then be flexible uh, and go, look. I've worked for myself for 16 years uh, and then from there you go and, and look for work and another and bits and pieces to fill out the day or the calendar and the diary with a huge amount of variety. So I've been really, I've been, in one sense, I've, you know, I acknowledge been really lucky and fortunate to have it the the other sense is actually I work really hard to to, there's not many people who write their own articles a blank sheet of paper every week and uh, I've done over a million and a half words for the Telegraph on rugby and and sport generally and Mrs Clues my old English teacher would tell would tell everyone I was rubbish at English and so I've retrained and retrained as a presenter and so it's been a lot of fun doing doing it and I've had some uh, you know to be Touchline for the Lions series, as the hackers done for the third test in Auckland, or you're know, high up at Pretoria at Loftus Versfeld for that test match where um, Mornay Stain kicks the pen that beats us. Jack Faree scores up the right hand side, and we were up on top of the stand. So it's it's being in the Millennium Stadium at ground level when the Welch come out and are battering England, and the noise is just scary. Uh, been some great times
0: as well. Yeah. What well, What did the training kind of look like for that? Like, did you did you just learn on the job as a, yeah. As a pundit? Yeah. No one tells you anything, really.
1: Um, social media tells you you're rubbish. Yeah. Comment section of any articles tell you you're a muppet. Um, so you try and have less people calling you muppet than than you do saying it's quite good. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the reality is got, you tend to surround yourself with some, some, some trusted friends and advisors who tell you how it is, ask your mates, ask your closest, ask, the, ask your work colleagues to give you pretty candid feedback and honest, transparent feedback and pick up things that you're repeating, Get, remove, remove phrases that are irrelevant, old, out of date, Stay fresh, visit training, go and see different sports, understand what's going on in the world. So, um, yeah, you just have to make sure that you're not just in a bubble thinking you're great and being told you're great by your mum the whole time because that's that's the reality is our mums think we're great no matter what we do, right? So uh, their feedback is lovely sometimes when you've had a bad day, but don't rely on mum's feedback because... Um,
0: they tend to think you're, you're great at everything you do. Just quickly then, you've got to the top with rugby, a pundit, your school of hard knocks I found so inspiring. You're really passionate about sport for, for all ages and with the Festival of Sport coming up this summer at Holcomb, of course. What, what is your ambition, Will? And, and just on the, for the benefit of a student audience who, who are maybe at Durham, um, wondering what, what they're to do with, with their talent, with their ambition, what in life is is worth pursuing with your time why'd you do it what'd you do it for okay
1: meaning a life question
0: yeah go on Um, i think take giant
1: leaps of faith just throw yourself off the cliff and go for it and and know you'll land and know you'll the worst the worst is never as bad as you fear um And if you're ruthless enough about it and you you take a path that's wrong, cut the rope quick and move and shift. Don't stay in it. Um, Do something you're passionate about. Do something that you're leaping out of bed for and you feel can make a difference. Don't be driven by sterling and decimal points and pound signs. Be driven by something that fulfills you. So I don't know if I've said about four or five different things there, but be prepared to fail, be passionate uh, and just take the first step. Yeah. Just honestly, it's um, the, the minute you start running out of chances is the minute you stop taking them. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big, don't believe that your life's controlled by fate. No matter how, whatever's happening, no matter how, dark it may seem the second you think you're controlled by fate it's the world's biggest lie you've always got time to fix things and breathe and make the right decision Um, so and I think the reality as well especially at the moment is reach out and ask for help reach out and talk to people Um, understand that you're not the only one if you're having a tough time who's having a tough time And if you communicate with people about it, it goes back to the other point. It's never as dark as you may feel it is. So um, be vulnerable and ask for support, I think is is hugely important. There are a lot of people out there who who are willing and and wanting to help people. uh, So just ask.
0: Well, Greenwood, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.